Well, dear brethren, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And I'll read the final letter dictated by our Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I said to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And let's once again ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Our Father, as our brother has led us in prayer, we again acknowledge that we are glad to be among your assembled people. And you have promised that where two or three are gathered together in your name, you will be in the midst. And here we see what you say to your gathered church when you are in the midst. And we ask our God that although we are not deserving of the least of your mercies, we ask that you would be gracious to us and speak to our hearts and work mightily in our hearts as you have given us this scripture for our spiritual food. Grant, Lord, that we may be nourished by it and strengthened by it and inflamed with love and devotion to you and your glory. We ask through your own blessed name. Amen. Amen. This is a quite an unusual text in many respects. It is on the one hand a sharp reproving text. I don't think you can read it and not see that the Lord is displeased with the church at Laodicea. And yet, 
is also one of the most gracious texts because he offers such wonderful benefits to a church which is sunk in such deep trouble, spiritual trouble. So it, we've got the, the highs and the lows in, in one letter here. We have in this scripture the wonderful grace of God. This is what we learn about our God. He is benevolent. He is rich in mercy. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is forgiving. I, I think recently we may have sung that song, Who is a Pardoning, or maybe we read the text in the prophet, Who is a Pardoning God like thee, and who has grace so rich and free? Well, here in this final letter to one of the churches in Asia Minor, the excellencies of the Lord Jesus are displayed. There are stinging rebu rebukes from the Lord Jesus. Very solemn, very powerful. But they are issued in faithfulness and with the purpose of healing the fatal spiritual diseases of the church to which it is written. The church to whom it is written, they're in, they are in the most awful shape. I don't think, you know, sometimes pre preachers, they use hyperbole and they say, well, this is the worst of this and this is the best of that. But this is really, really a, a, an awful condition for the church who receives the words of Jesus. So as we have done in each of the seven letters, the six letters so far, we begin the seventh letter with the, the city Laodicea, the city Laodicea. And the best thing that I can do for you is to read the words. I've, I've had this book before and quoted for, from it before for you. William Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors. Um, an excellent book on the book of Revelation. And let me read to you what he has to say about Laodicea. I, I don't think I can really say it better. I don't think I can say it as well. Here he writes. Laodicea was situated in the neighborhood of hot springs. Emitting lukewarm water from the mouth was a figure, it was a picture, which its citizens could easily understand because they had warm springs. A famous school of medicine grew up there, producing, among other things, a remedy for weak eyes, ISAV. In this, the city, in this, in this city, the soft black wool from the sheep of the valley was woven into garments. But Laodicea was especially famous for its wealth. Located at the joining of three great highways, it grew rapidly into a great commercial and financial center. It was the home of millionaires. There were, of course, theaters, a stadium, a gymnasium equipped with baths, everything that a rich person, a rich family would want, they had. It was a city of bankers and finance. So wealthy was this city that its inhabitants declined to receive from the government after the place had been partly wrecked by, a, by a, an earthquake. Imagine that. Something awful like that, like a floods, like an earthquake happens. The town is partially destroyed and the people say, don't, don't send us any money. We don't want FEMA here. We have enough money to rebuild it ourselves. We're rich. 
That was Laodicea. The citizens of Laodicea were rich and they knew it. That, that reminds me of that, that man in the, uh, the rich man in the parable. Uh, he was so rich, he felt it. Uh, I don't think I know anybody here who is so rich that they feel it. But that's what was true of Laodicea. They knew it. They were unbearable. Is a people so rich, so secure that they would, they had no embarrassment. There's a movie of a, a rich Jewish woman who had a, 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 a driver, a driving Miss Daisy. And he told Miss Daisy, if I had what you had, I'd be telling everybody about it. That was his view. You rich, flaunt it. Well, that was the view of Laodicea as well. We're rich. We know it. You should know it as well. So you can see, brethren, how this letter from the Lord Jesus Christ matches the city. And the church was very much like its city, you see. It was like a city. Rich, secure. That's the city, Laodicea. Second thing, Christ's self Description. You have that in verse 14, second half of verse 14, where the Lord Jesus Christ describes himself. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. And then what he says is self-description here. He talks about himself as the Amen. And I'm glad that in City View, you brethren say amen. You know, there's a there's a place, there are a lot of churches now in our days that don't say amen. They're afraid to say amen. Maybe they're afraid of getting too excited about spiritual things. But Paul expects the churches to say amen. Because he tells the Corinthian Christians, how shall the ungifted man Say your amen, his amen, when you give thanks, because he won't understand it if you're speaking in tongues. So the amen was expected. And Jesus calls himself the amen. It's a word of affirmation. When truth is spoken, when the mind and the heart enter into the truth, amen is the proper response. Well, because Jesus is the faithful and true witness, what he says is true, he is also the amen. All the words he ever spoke were truth. And now he wants the church at Laodicea to know what I tell you is not hyperbole, it's not exaggeration, uh, I'm not saying something just to get something off my chest. That's what people say sometimes and then they'll tell you they didn't mean it. Uh, but that's not the Lord Jesus. All the words he ever spoke is truth. And what he says now to this church is the faithful truth. Even though it stings, it stings, it's, it's rebuke and it's, uh, it has an edge to it. And brethren, sometimes the truth has to have an edge. It has to have an edge. If you say the truth without any edge, people will say, well, you know, it's just words. No, it's, it's not just words. The truth will sometimes come with a bite. 
Jesus also describes himself as the beginning of the creation of God. And you can see how this church has sunk very low. And what Jesus says about himself is to encourage the church in, in, in one respect. He is, he is the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, because, but because Jesus is caring for the church, he is able to revive it. He is able to recreate it. He created all things, and he can, he can take a church, which is almost dead, and recreate it. Give it life better than it's ever had. That's, that's what Jesus is telling them in his self-description. So we have the church in Laod, the city Laodicea, Christ's self-description, and now in the third place this evening, Christ's diagnosis of their desperate condition in verses 15 through 17. Christ's diagnosis of their desperate condition. And look over in your Bible as I read again verses 15, 16, and 17. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you. That's the word. My translation has spit. I'm, I'm, I don't remember what the King James has, but the, the word here is vomit. That's that's the meaning of the verb. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I say, I sat to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And I read a little bit further than I intended, but there it is. There's the condition of the church in Laodicea, their desperate condition. Jesus begins with the usual statement. I say that, you know, every one of these letters, he, the first thing he says to them is, I know your deeds. And this, uh, you know, you might... If you read it enough times, you say, you say, well, you know, that's how he starts. You know, it's just like a, a dear Uncle Leo. It's such a pleasure to see you over Christmas. That's just that's just what you write. But that's not what the way Jesus is writing. He is not writing a mere formality following a form of letter writing. He is attentive to them. Remember from chapter one, he walks among the, the candlesticks. He is dressed as the great high priest that he's carrying. He's tending for the candlesticks that they may bring glory to God. So he knows all about them. And what Jesus tells them is that their deeds match their condition. When The first couple of times I read it, I didn't, I didn't notice this. In fact, I think... I really noticed it in preparation for this sermon. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. You see, Jesus is saying that their deeds are lukewarm like them. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. Their deeds match their spiritual condition. They are in a spiritual dream world where nothing is very important. They are complacent in the extreme. There's nothing to worry about. 
nothing to be concerned about, no zeal for God, for the church, for its works. The works are cold. Some believe that hot is the only acceptable state for the church. And that's very interesting. Some people, some very good men, say that cold is the condition of the unconverted and hot is the condition of those who are spiritually alive. That I don't think that that matches what Jesus is saying here. That's not the point at all. In terms of drinking water, what kind of drinks do you like? You see, some people like hot drinks, hot coffee, hot cocoa, hot tea, or some people like cold drinks, lemonade, right? Um, other, uh, maybe, uh, oh boy, my mind is failing me. Other drinks that you might like that you get out of the refrigerator, okay? Maybe a, maybe a cold brew coffee like my wife likes. Uh, so a hot drink can be refreshing. It can be enjoyable. And a cold drink can be uh, refreshing and enjoyable as well. And that, I believe, is what, what's behind Jesus' statement. He doesn't say, you're cold, so I don't want you. He says, the problem with you is you're lukewarm. My family lived in the top floor in Staten Island, actually in Brooklyn also. We lived in the top floor of a large apartment building. And my mother would oftentimes tell me, Frankie, so she called me, get me a glass of water. And she would tell me, open, open up the faucet and let it run because I want the water to be cold. And if I ever brought her water, which was lukewarm, she'd say, Frank, that's nauseating. It's nauseating. It's disgusting. Get me cold water, you see. And this is what our Lord Jesus Christ tells these people. The water is lukewarm. If the church is lukewarm, the Lord Jesus Christ says, it is nauseating. I will vomit you because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now that's just the beginning of his spiritual diagnosis, because he goes on to tell them more in verse 17, more details about the spiritual condition of the believers in the church of Laodicea. They seem to think, and this is the first part, the bad, one of the, one of the bad parts. Um, in their minds, they think about themselves they look, as it were, in the mirror at themselves as, as, as Christians. They look at their church and they say, everything is as good as can be. As good as it can be. We are one of the best churches in Asia Minor. In fact, I think they would have said, we are the best church in Asia Minor. And Jesus tells them this is their problem. Not only are they lukewarm, and this is perhaps the reason why they're lukewarm. You say, I am rich, 
and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Is self-complacent, self-confident, and deadly wrong. Jesus knows their true condition. And what Jesus does for them is he tells them what they are. He tells them. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to go on thinking everything's great. He doesn't want them to have a positive self-image. You know, uh, self-image today is all the rage. You want, you want people to think the best they can about themselves, but it's all wrong. It's all wrong. So Jesus makes sure they know what their true condition is. They say this about themselves. We're, we're great. We're really great. It's awful. It's awful when people think that everything is well and then tragedy strikes. The internet has these videos of fails. Every once in a while, I see one and I watch it with my wife. And you have somebody who's trying to jump in the pool and land on a rubber duck or something and it goes wrong and something it twists over and they uh, they end up going face first and it's really really funny but uh these are not funny there's no comedy here the condition jesus describes is awful it's awful jesus says they are Wretched. That's the first word. He has set five words to describe it. And we'll, I won't go into detail on every one of them, but, but these two first are very important for us to understand. Jesus says you are wretched. Wretched. Is, uh, it means you're under the weight of multiple troubles. Multiple troubles. It's like a person with many bleeding wounds, limping along, carrying terrible weights. Maybe he's got some, some bags. Maybe he's got a big backpack on him trying to carry some stuff. It's not his. He doesn't get it. But he's got wounds, and he has a limp, and he's carrying terrible weights. He's making no effort to get relief. This is wretched. That's, that's what it is. It's wretched. Miserable, the second word, usually means that he feels his condition, but not in this case. You see what it says. You think, this is the way you think, and this is what you are not. You think everything's great. You think you're great, but you're miserable. In other words, uh, you are worthy to be pitied. It's, it's very awful. The word has the idea that others can see and feel sorry. It's, it's like when you drive by an accident. I drove by one time. A guy had been riding a bike on a busy street, and he fell, and he, and he broke his head. And there he is lying on the ground. Miserable. I felt pity for him. They're clearly wretched and miserable. Because Jesus says you don't know. You don't even know. You don't know what you are. Jesus faithfully and compassionately tells them their true condition. And it is very important for us, brethren, to know our true condition, to be told what our true condition is. And Jesus tells them, 
beyond the two general descriptions of uh, wretched and miserable, he says you are poor, blind, and naked. Now, you don't need a big exposition on those <coughs> counts, except to know that this is not talking about their natural condition. It's not talking about their bank account. It's not talking about their home. It's not talking about their health or their clothing. It's talking about their spiritual condition. You are poor, says Jesus. You have no spiritual goods. You don't even have any, you don't have any spiritual savings. You don't have any spiritual money, as it were. You have nothing to trade with to improve your condition. You know, when you have some savings, even though you may have a difficult situation, you can maybe turn in all your savings bonds and cash out your CD and improve. But when you're poor, you have no way of improvement. And Jesus says, not only are you wretched and miserable, but you are poor. You have nothing, nothing to trade with, no reserves. You are blind. You have no discernment, no ability to see your own condition. Maybe you don't, maybe, uh, maybe the picture we should have is somebody who has no mirrors at all. No mirrors anywhere in the house. That would be, uh, for most of you women, that would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? <laughs> no mirrors to look in to see what you look like. For the men, perhaps not so much. We're a little bit different in our appreciation of mirrors, though I think we all like them to some degree. But again, Jesus says, you're blind. You don't know about yourself. You don't know who you really are. It was a English poet who said, oh, that someone the grace would gee us to see ourselves as others see us. Because we can't see ourselves natively. We can't see it. And then Jesus says, you're naked. You have nothing to cover yourself. You have nothing to hide your terrible condition. You know, most homeless people have something to hide their condition. Uh, they seldom go around with nothing, not even a blanket, something to cover their naked condition. But this is the case in Laodicea. Nothing to hide it. One of the Puritans, John Flavel, has a book, The Touchstone of Sincerity. And he says it very well. I'm just going to read you. It's, it's very brief. So let me read you what John Flavel says about this. First, they are poor, that is, void of righteousness and true holiness before God. These, true righteousness, are the true riches of Christians. And whoever lacks them is poor and miserable, however rich he might be in gifts of the mind and treasures of the earth. Secondly, they are blind without spiritual illumination. So they neither know their disease nor their remedy. They know not the evil of sin, nor the necessity of Christ. Thirdly, they are naked without Christ and his righteousness. Sin is the soul's shame and nakedness. Christ's pure and perfect righteousness is its covering or garment. This they lacked, however richly their, their bodies were well adorned. That's what the sad condition of Laodicea is. Let's look in the fourth place, though, at the wonderful remedy Christ has for the church. The remedy Christ has for the church in verses 18 and 19. He says, I advise you to buy from me 
gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments, remember they made black garments of, land, of, uh, of the skins of animals, black garments. He said, I, I offer you, I tell you to, receive, to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I sat to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here is Christ's remedy for this church. Verses 18 and of course verse 19 we'll get to in a moment. The remedy of the Lord Jesus is wonderfully gracious. And it's hard to underscore it so that we really appreciate it to the degree that we ought to. The Lord Jesus Christ does not send these people away to some other physician. Sometimes you go to a doctor. I, I went to a doctor one time because uh, of my heart and some irregularities, and the doctor said, well, you're going to have to go see a cardiologist because I, I see something's wrong, but you need a cardiologist. So that, that person couldn't help me. Send me off to some other specialist. And of course, some people go from one specialist to another trying to find the remedy for their physical afflictions. Um, but the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't send them to anybody else. He doesn't send them to the saints. He doesn't send them to Mary. He doesn't send them to the sacraments. He says, here, I'm going to treat you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to revive you. That's why he's the beginning of the creation of God. He is able. Jesus knows that he can do it, and he is ready to treat them with an effective remedy, and he tells them exactly what he's going to do for them. The Lord Jesus advises them to buy from him. We're going to come back to that in a moment, but let's talk about first what he wants them to buy from them, what he wants them to obtain from him. They must obtain the remedy from him. And, the, and one of the reasons why he says buy is because he wants them to understand that they don't have it. They must obtain it and it must come from him. Uh, if I have to buy a, well, we had recently to buy some things for my wife's recovery that were expensive. So we had to go to CVS. It wasn't covered on our medical prescription plan. So we had to pay more money than we would like to for that, for that prescription. And now I'm, I'm, I, well, she, she mentioned it just the other day. We were looking at bills and she said, yeah, this wasn't on our plan. That's why we had to pay so much for it. You see? So you remember when you really need it, you remember where you got it. And that's what Jesus wants them to remember where does it come from it comes from Christ alone he advises them to buy and his remedy is described as refined gold his grace is gold to make them rich they think they're rich he says you're poor you have nothing are you kidding me sometimes people think they have a lot of money and then they read an article on how much you need for retirement these days. Then these days, you'll never have enough money to retire. If you listen to the experts, nobody has enough money except the very, very, very rich from Laodicea. 
but he has gold to make them truly rich. And of course, this is a symbol for of his grace. Again, uh, John Flavel, the Puritan, says, real grace is very precious and greatly enriches the soul that has it. And that's what Christ says. I have gold for you. And if you buy from me the gold of my grace, if you get that from me, you are rich indeed. You can shut the mouth of millionaires. You think you're rich? I have grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's rich. This comes from Christ alone. They need garments. They need, of course, Christ's righteousness to cover their nakedness. As I quoted before, nakedness, sin is the nakedness of the soul. And it can only be covered with Christ's righteousness. It is justification that gives us the record of Christ's perfect obedience to cover our sins. His blood secures the forgiveness of sin and his obedience covers our disobedience, you see. Without this, without this, their state will quickly become visible to everyone. I suspect that you're like me in this regard. I'm a very shy guy. And June is likely a very modest woman. So if we're, we're, if we're in our favorite room where we spend time together, and there's a little crack in the blinds. June says, hey, look at that. Fix that. Go over there and fix it so that the blinds are completely shut. There are people who... I'll be very quick on this comment. There are people who think that nakedness is the preferred condition of men. That's why they have nudist colonies. They have a theology. They have a worldview about nakedness. But the Bible doesn't teach that worldview. The Bible teaches modesty. So I'm very grateful for modesty when I see it. Well, here Jesus says, you should cover your nakedness, you know. Some people say, well, just, you know, be what you be. Let it all hang out. A bad metaphor for one's style of life. So Jesus tells them, I have white robes. You have black, I have white robes, so that I hide the shame of your nakedness. His righteousness. However, I want to add this point. Christ's righteousness, when the minute we believe in Jesus, repent of our sins and put our hope in Jesus, we have Christ's righteousness. And it's enough to cover our nakedness, enough to give us right standing before God. But the Lord Jesus does something else, and I, I don't think it's good spiritually to forget this. He also gives them grace, that gold, that grace, so that they can walk in newness of life. So that the Christian, when he receives what Christ offers, he has both the righteousness of Christ to cover his sins and sanctifying grace to walk in newness of life. Both of those things are important. 
and they make a Christian rightly covered in the eyes of God and man. This comes from Christ. And then since they can't see their true condition, he offers them eye salve. And that eye salve, at least in my opinion, I, I, I think you'll agree, is the gift of the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual illumination so that we can see. Without the operations of the Holy Spirit, we won't be able to see. We won't be able to see ourselves. We won't be able to see others. But this is what the Lord Jesus Christ gives. He gives eye salve so that we may see. All of this comes from Christ and no other source. And so, as I said, he urges them to buy. Very curious, is it not? Very interesting, is it not? Because they have nothing to buy with. He just told them, you're poor, and I want you, I tell you what you do about it. Come and buy. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You go to a flea market, and this guy says, hey, I realize that you don't have your wallet with you. You have no money, but, but come on and buy something. Doesn't work, does it? Uh, they have nothing to buy with. They have nothing to trade with. They need to buy without money. And that is what God says that you may do. Come buy milk without price, without money. Christ runs the only market where you can buy without money and without price. And though you may buy this way, you still need to get rid of the things that occupy your hands. You see, if you have all the world's goods in your hands, if you are preoccupied with the things that you have apart from Christ, what are you going to hold the things that Christ gives you? You have to let go of all the garbage so that you may have what Christ offers. You have to get rid of your self-confidence. You have to get rid of your self-satisfaction. And those are the things you get rid of in order to receive. And I think that's the point. That's what he says by. Before we're done with the verses, though, I want to point out that Jesus includes much needed encouragement in verse 19. Please look down at your text with me again. At verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, that might not seem like encouragement to you, but to Christ, it is encouragement. And to us, it is actually much needed encouragement. You see, once they see their real condition. And if you can put yourself in the place of the Laodicean church, and you say, okay, who am I? Well, I'm wretched and miserable. I'm poor and blind and naked. It's not really uh, a good self-image, we would say. But uh, they, they're going to they're be tempted to despair. What hope is there for us? How can we be recovered? We have nothing. Once they see what the Lord Jesus Christ says, and if they take it to heart, they're going to be tempted to despair. But Christ gives the, this hopeful motive, this hopeful encouragement. Those whom I love, I reprove 
and discipline. These are very gracious words for such hopeless people. Jesus says, you, maybe you're discouraged. I told you you're miserable and poor and blind and naked. Well, why did I say that? Because I love you. That's why. Because I want to do you good. I want you to take the remedies. I want to revive you, says Jesus to these people. Very gracious words for a hopeless people. So now... They know what they must do. Jesus tells them. He says, you have to be zealous. <laughs> you know what that word is. That, that word zealous has the uh, idea of heat. And Jesus was saying to them, right? I wish you were hot or cold. And he tells them, be hot and repent. Be zealous and repent. Your condition is not only wretched and miserable. You know, we, we have a society today, once again, when you have a problem, oh, poor you, you know, you're, you're addicted to gambling, you're addicted to alcohol, you're addicted to sex. Oh, poor child. No, it's sin. Jesus tells the Laodicean Christians, your condition, you're not a, you're not a, hmm, what's the word? You're not a victim, you're a sinner. When you're addicted to sin, you're not a victim. You don't just have a sickness, you are a sinner. And the way that sinners deal with their sins is they repent. They vomit their sins out. They eject them. They forsake them. They seek grace from Christ. So that's what Jesus says. Be zealous and repent. So there you have it. Took a little longer than the other points, but it, it's warranted. This is the Christ remedy for the church, a very gracious remedy. So now, Jesus gives them further motives. Further motives in verses 20 and 21. Look again, please, at the text. Verses 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, these words, very interesting. I stand at the door and knock. They have two things that they are often misunderstood in. Number one, these are often thought of as purely evangelistic, and they are very evangelistic words. Jesus is speaking to a church, though. He's not out on the street corner saying, I stand at the door and knock. He's in the church saying, I stand at the door and knock. He's addressing the church in all of its need. This is a church invitation. And of course it is a suitable evangelistic invitation. And again, the second thing that's wrong with it, in one sense the way it's, it's treated, is poor Jesus. Poor Jesus, he's knocking and you have to open the door and let him in. Poor Jesus. 
No, it's not poor Jesus. It's royal saving Jesus saying, I'm here and I intend to save you. It's not poor Jesus who can't do anything to save you. He is rich Jesus who can do everything to save you. It's a powerful savior at the door. And at the door is, in one sense, dear brethren, a demanding Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. It's not a nice soft tap, tap, tap. It's, it's not that way. But it is. It is a gracious invitation because he says, you're going to have communion with me. I'm not just going to heal you now. I've been under the treatment of a number of doctors. I don't. I don't see any of them on a regular basis. June sees her therapists and periodically she'll be seeing her, the doctor who repaired her uh, femur. Uh, we don't see them on a regular basis, but Jesus says, I tell you what, you may have communion with me constantly. You open the door you consent to be saved by my royal power and grace. And I will come and I'll sit down at the table with you. And we will have intimate communion together. That is a gracious, a gracious invitation from a Savior who has been offended, greatly offended and spurned. Because remember, these are church people. And he promises to have communion with them. And he promises them not only communion, but he promises them the best place in his eternal kingdom. He says, if you come and, and you uh, come to me and you do what I tell you, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That is a promise for these people. He says, I'm going to give you the very blessed, the very best place in my kingdom. Although you deserve nothing, although you deserve rejection in hell, I'm going to give you the best place in the kingdom. Is a story about George Whitfield, because he and John Wesley didn't get along very well. Uh, and somebody asked uh, Whitfield, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? Very interesting answer. He says, no, no, I don't think so. He says, because he's going to be so much closer to the throne that I won't be able to see him. That was the gracious response of Whitfield. But their brethren, all of Christ, Christ, Jesus has a big throne, a big throne, because all of his believing people who overcome get to sit down with him on his throne. Nobody will be dissatisfied. I had a young man ask me this. Well, people will have regrets in heaven? No. Even the Laodiceans will have regrets in heaven if they repent. Because they're going to have the best place in heaven. And if you believe in Jesus, and he is your Savior, you likewise will sit on his throne. This is a general promise that is made to all the people of God. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Well, the last thing in our text is the call to attention. The call to attention. Again, uh, Jesus says what he often says to the church is, let 
what he always says to the church is, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the great question now that we have gone through a text all too fast, what does Christ want the churches to learn? What does Christ want City View Baptist Church to learn? Number one. Great opinions of self are not the measure of our true condition. Great opinions of ourself are not the true measure of our spiritual condition. Again, our culture is conditioning us to think, think the best of yourself, think you're great. When you go on an interview, tell the employer, I'm great. You might think, well, that's what, that's what we should do spiritually. No, it is not. No, it is not. One woman wrote this hymn. Christian, seek not yet repose. Cast thy dreams of ease away. Thou art in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. We should suspect ourselves. We should have a realistic view of ourselves. Not thinking greatness of ourselves. That, that's a terrible mistake. A terrible mistake. Humble views of ourselves with watchfulness of heart and awareness of our dangers is the best thing for us. That's what Christ wants the churches to know. He wants individual Christians to know. One of the things, fearful things, is the attitude of Samson. After he uh, started, no, before when he uh, when he first had his hair cut by Delilah and the Philistines, he said this about himself: "I will go out as at other times," and he did not know that the Lord had deserted him. There's a man who was miserable and wretched. And if we, brethren, have too much confidence in what we have already attained, we will be miserable and wretched as well. It's true of every one of us. It's true of every Christian. Remember that those who are well have no need of a physician. In this life, we're all in rehab. We are all in rehabilitation. We're all under the care of Christ the Rehabilitator. If you think that you're not, beware and wake up. Secondly, what does Christ want the churches to know? He wants to know the, that the greatness of the grace of Jesus Christ is the best hope of his people. Your best hope and my best hope is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, his great riches to his failing, almost dead saints. So with any sense of our need, we may go to him. We don't have to be moping. I'm not saying we should be moping. In fact, I'm saying we should not be moping Christians. I have a brother who complains to me about myself. I'm going to tell you about him. Uh, you've actually, he's, he actually preached here one time. He complains to me. He says, Frank, whenever I say you ask you how you're doing, you say how happy you are, how well you're doing. Why? Because I have a gracious Savior. I'm under the care of Jesus Christ. 
and I'm with the brethren, the best people on the face of the earth. See, I mean that too. You shouldn't, you shouldn't think too highly of yourself, but you know what? When we see the brethren, we're seeing the best image bearers on the face of the earth. That's what we're seeing. So we love them. He says, Frank, you never, you never, you never complain. Why? Me complain? Why? I'm under the care of my Savior. It's not that I'm never down, never down, never have any doubts. But with every sense of our need, we may go to him. And we do not need to go around moping and looking sad. We have a great Savior. Let me ask you something. Are you a moper? You know, one of my friends told me one time, you know, the people you see in church, in church we are in our best behavior. That's probably true. So I'm asking you, are you a moper? Are you a doubter? Are you someone who says, ah, oh, you know, there's no hope for someone like me. No, that's not true. I love what one of my pastors said one time. People say, I'm at the end of my rope. And he says, it's not your rope. Never at the end of your rope because it's not your rope. It's Christ's rope. I like that. It's good theology. Don't be moping. Don't do it in private. Don't lie on your bed moping. You have a great savior. Maybe you're so downcast because you don't believe in him the way you ought to. So you look to him for spiritual riches. You may be happy under his care regardless. That's my the second thing Jesus wants the churches to know. Third thing. The great diseases of a church do not spell their ultimate doom. Their ultimate doom. Some people see only the bad things of the church. Maybe you feel that way sometimes about City View Baptist Church. I don't think you should. But, whatever you think about the church, remember that the great diseases of the church do not spell their ultimate doom. We should not give up on Christ's churches even when they look like Laodicea. I, uh, City View is not the only place I preach. My pastors have sent me to a church to preach sometimes, and I say to myself, boy, they don't know how to worship there. I mean it. it, it it's, it's, it's sad, very sad. And I, I tell myself, I'd rather be in churches where the worship is vigorous and where the people know how to honor God. And then I, I have to check myself and say, Paul went to Lystra. He preached at Lystra. He preached in the synagogues where people knew almost nothing about the gospel, very little about the gospel. And if Christ can send them there, Christ can send me anywhere he pleases. When you see a church in, all, in an awful condition, pray for them. And if God opens a door for you, declare this message to them. I'm not, I'm not trying to be simplistic and say this is the only thing to preach at degenerate churches, but this is one of them, a good text. The great message for failing churches. Christ is full of grace and truth. He's able to revive the most backslidden believers and churches, as unworthy as they are. 
And Christ is able to give them a privileged place among their people. So if you have a chance to minister in that kind of a church, a Laodicean church, you can do so with prayerful confidence into God who is able to recreate his churches. Let's pray that he will do that in many instances in our generation. So our Lord and our God, we bow before you and thank you for the gracious words which fell from your lips in the letter to the Laodicean church. We thank you for these words. They give us hope and courage. We pray that you would minister to our hearts. Help us to trust more in you as our Savior. Help us to resort to you that you may give us eyesight that we may see, that you may clothe us with righteousness and that you may impart the riches of your grace to us. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for all of our sins. And please continue to deal graciously with us as a people according as you have promised. We ask for your mercies with confidence in you through Jesus our Lord. Amen.